1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. In the summer of 1922, two of the most famous men in the world went on a vacation together with their families in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini, Harry Houdini taught Arthur Conan Doyle's sons how to dive and float in the hotel pool. Conan Doyle was visiting America from England. He later wrote that he didn't know how to describe Atlantic City because we have nothing in England at all like it. He wrote about swimming in the ocean like it was an out-of-body experience, saying it was the nearest to detachment from Earth that normal life can give. He was 63. Houdini was 48. Arthur Conan Doyle and his wife, Jean, everyone called her Lady Doyle, invited Houdini to a private seance in their hotel room. Just the three of them, sitting at a round table in a dark
2: room. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's wife, was um, an amateur psychographer, and that is someone who um, believes that they can channel the messages of spirits through automatic writing. So a psychographer would enter a trance state and then begin to write a sort of a free association writing, which they would attribute to to um, spiritual influence.
1: Author, Tony Wolfe. Houdini later wrote that Lady Doyle took a pencil and with spasmodic jerks of her right hand, started to strike the table, explaining that the force had taken hold of her. And then Lady Doyle began to
2: write. And ostensibly she was channeling a message from Houdini's beloved mother. And so she she wrote and wrote pages and pages of of, um, messages. They were then presented to Houdini at the end of the seance.
1: 15 handwritten pages with lines like, it's so different over here, so much larger and bigger and more beautiful, all sweetness all around, now I can rest in peace. Conan Doyle later wrote that his friend Houdini looked grimmer and paler at every moment. Houdini didn't say much.
2: He liked the Doyles, he enjoyed their company, he didn't want to disrespect them, so he was just kind of politely non-committal. He took the pieces of paper and left the room. And the first thing that Houdini noticed was that the pages were headed with the drawn symbol of a cross. He thought that was unlikely to have been issued by his mother, who was a devout Jew and the the widow of a rabbi. He noted that um, all of the pages were written in English, and his mother barely spoke a word of English. Um, He also noted that they were effectively a series of generic platitudes, and his mother simply hadn't spoken like that.
1: As channeled by Lady Doyle, Houdini's mother called her son Harry, which he knew was wrong. His mother didn't call him that. But Houdini didn't bring any of this up. The two families continued their vacation. Houdini told Conan Doyle a few days later that he'd been profoundly moved by the experience. I've been walking on air ever since, he said.
2: What seems to have happened then is that Arthur Conan Doyle, in his, his great enthusiasm, seems to have genuinely believed that Houdini was converted to the cause by the events of this seance.
1: When it was time for the Conan Doyles to sail back to England, Houdini saw them off at the dock. There were lots of fans and reporters. It was reported that one of Conan Doyle's children was given a parting gift from the Bronx Zoo, a five foot king snake. Houdini told reporters his friendship with Conan Doyle was one of admiration, fondness, and respect. But privately, Houdini was uncomfortable. He'd been very, very close with his mother, and he wrote that the possibility of being able to somehow communicate with her meant to me an easing of all pain that I had in my heart. He wanted to be open minded but he knew the séance wasn't real. Houdini knew that Conan Doyle was deeply invested in spiritualism, the belief in and practice of communication with the dead. At this point, Arthur Conan Doyle, most famous for writing the Sherlock Holmes novels and stories, had almost stopped writing fiction entirely. He poured all of his energy into writing about spiritualism.
2: He believed that it would be the um, effectively the religion of the future.
1: He believed sincerely and was protective of his beliefs, which included the idea that spirits could manifest in our world through sounds or tilting tables or ectoplasm, a sort of liquid goo that comes out of a medium when they're channeling the dead. In a letter to the New York Times in August of 1922, Conan Doyle wrote... Every new thing faces the opposition of ignorant and prejudiced people, and ectoplasm is no exception. He loved ectoplasm. He called it miraculous stuff. In September of 1922, a few months after Conan Doyle's vacation with Houdini, Conan Doyle published a detailed description of the séance that had taken place in Atlantic City Houdini began to receive letters from people wanting to know if the story was true and, if he had, communicated with his mother.
2: That put Houdini in a very difficult position because he had to directly contradict his friend. And, and so he did. He said, no, I was not convinced. Doyle appears to have taken that as a sort of a an impugning of his wife's honor. And unfortunately, that that ended the friendship, and then the two men became rather bitter rivals.
1: Harry Houdini, the most famous magician in the world, became obsessed with the tricks and illusions of seances. There are three kinds of mediums, he said: those who are honestly deluded, those who are psychotics, and those who are criminals. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is criminal. Can you—I just want to go back to, to Arthur Conan Doyle's initial interest in in spiritualism. And will you talk a little bit about um, the, the fairies and the fairy photos?
2: Yeah, the Cottingley fairy incident. Um, I could start by saying what actually happened, which was that a couple of, of um, rather mischievous and very clever um, English schoolgirls decided to play a prank on their family. And they cut out— pictures of um, fairies from one of their children's books. They affixed the pictures to hat pins, long um, long pins, stuck them in the ground um, in various picturesque locations at the bottom of their garden, and took photographs of them. And they then showed them to their parents as ostensible proof that there were fairies at the bottom of their garden. And um, the, the fame of the Cottingley fairy incident spread far and wide. And eventually came to the attention of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was initially skeptical, but eventually was persuaded that this was a demonstration of a, of a genuine phenomenon. And he wrote a book defending the photographs, defending their authenticity, um, and he did attempt as much of a scientific investigation of the sort of thing as one could at the time. He um, had the photographs analyzed by, I think it was the Kodak company. Their expert was basically able to say, I don't think that these are, are superimpositions, which was true, they weren't. They were photographs of physical objects. It's just that the physical objects were paper dolls rather than you know, fairies. He was very widely lampooned in the media and by much of society at that time. He really took a lot of heat for his defense of the Cottingley fairies because most people Looked at the pictures and said, "Okay, that, that it's this is a clever schoolgirl prank," but a, a significant subset, including Arthur Conan Doyle, took them as red, Said, "Okay, this is this is a real thing. Fairies are real."
1: It's so you know it's so surprising. I've read a lot of of Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes in the past year, and. I'm so surprised that he was so faithful in this way. It, it feels like a different person than the person who created the wry humour
2: of of Sherlock Holmes. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, um, there are two possible psychological influences you know, maybe. Um, one is that Sir Arthur Doyle's father unfortunately was um, suffered very badly from alcoholism and from depression. And spent much of the latter part of his life in what what were called then asylums, painting whimsical pictures of fairies. Uh, so it is p- conceivable that Arthur Conan Doyle saw in the Cottingley Fairy photograph a kind of a vindication of his, of his father's character. That that's purely speculative on on my behalf. The other, it's I think it's at least worth noting that um, he had lost numerous members of his family around the period of the First World War uh, to, to illness and accidents and so forth. His, I believe his um, eldest son, of, uh, his beloved eldest son, a brother, a brother-in-law, nephews and so forth. He had he experienced a lot of bereavement during the period immediately um, before he, he really took up the spiritualist crusade. It's important to note that he himself denied that that had any influence.
1: It's so interesting is that for the people who did believe, they weren't believing. It seems to me because they were just trying to be different or trying to to go with a trend that was new and fashionable. But a lot of these people were were really just in in pain, in deep grief, and they saw some hope in in this spiritualism.
2: Yes, oh yes, um, people were desperate. Th- that's the strange thing. That was what fueled um, Doyle's. Passionate belief in the subject and defense of the subject was the emotion, was the the stunning pain of loss, and that was also what fueled Houdini's anger at the at the phenomenon when it came to people employing magic tricks to uh, to create these illusions to to rip people off as part of a criminal criminal enterprise for profit. Yeah, within the the overtly criminal aspect of the Ghost Racket, the the con artist aspect there evolved a kind of a system of slang within that system a shut-eye refers to someone who is who is not wise to the game an easy mark um someone who is susceptible to gaffs gaff was was slang for the various um gimmicks the tricks that we used in seances an open eye is someone who is wise to the game someone who understands all the trickery who understands that we're talking basically about theater about con artistry here and and so forth it's possible and it was possible then to be a shut-eye medium as in um arthur Doyle's wife who appears to have genuinely believed that she had mediumistic powers and that from houdini's point of view she would have been what what was called a shut-eye medium someone who Attributes to spiritual causes what a psychologist might attribute more to to psychological causes.
1: Houdini wrote: "I think that in her heart of hearts, Lady Doyle is sincere, and I am positive that Sir Arthur is just as religious in his belief as it is possible for any human being to be." But Houdini was not a believer. He knew all the tricks. He was a professional. And very early in his career, he and his wife, Bess, traveled along a carnival circuit. And part of his act involved communing with the spirits of people who had died.
2: And it was a simple con game. Um, when you arrived in town, when you, your troop arrived in town, you might visit the local newspaper, look in newspaper archives, visit the cemetery and get details from um, tombstones and so forth to learn obscure details about, about the people of the town. And you would then employ um, also what was called cold reading. I think that's that's the current slang as well today. To um, sort of a weave a weave a web of guesses, educated guesses, which, if they're presented with sufficient confidence, can very easily persuade a gullible person to believe that you are in communication with with the spirits and they're revealing secrets that um, that the the medium couldn't possibly know otherwise. Um, He did that for a while. He um, was disgusted with himself, basically. He felt it was immoral. He stopped doing it as soon as he could afford to. Um, But much later in his career, when he became literally one of the most famous entertainers in the world, well, basically what happened was he was very, very close to his mother. And when she died, he was absolutely bereft. And um, in desperation, he began to visit seances, um, even though he knew the, the trickery. Um, in the desperate hope that a medium might be able to actually speak with his mother. But of course, being Harry Houdini, being a professional magician, completely au fait with all of the trickery of of, um, of that business, he instantly saw through all of the the tricks that were being used. And not just um, psychological tricks, not just cold reading and so forth, but actual magic tricks involving props and, and even costumes and such. And at that point in his life, in his career, it just enraged him. Um, He felt that it was a perversion of his art of magic. He saw that the other sitters in the sounds, of course, like him, they were bereft. They might have lost recently um, sons during the First World War and, of course, the influenza pandemic that had killed millions upon millions of um, particularly young people. And um, the idea that these fraudulent mediums were exploiting the art of magic to con money out of these desperately bereaved people It really got his goat, and he was in a position to do something about it, and so he he established himself as a crusader, as a sort of moral crusader against the fraudulent ghost racket.
1: But no matter what he said, people attending Houdini's shows and watching him do truly impossible things believed that he was some kind of medium or had powers of some sort. How else could he make an elephant disappear? Houdini was most famous for being an escape artist. He could escape from straitjackets, handcuffs, from jails, from containers full of water. He was even handcuffed inside a wooden crate that was nailed shut, wrapped with ropes and iron bands, and then lowered into New York's East River. And he escaped. Scientific American called it one of the most remarkable tricks ever performed. People thought he was magic. That was the only explanation. Spiritualists watched his tricks and thought he dissolved himself, dematerialized, and entered the fourth plane. And when Arthur Conan Doyle saw Houdini perform, he also believed that Houdini had powers.
2: Because Doyle for all of his worldliness, was entirely naive as to the mechanism of how stage magic works. Um, He would see Houdini apparently on stage pass through a brick wall, and Doyle could not fathom how such a thing could happen except through an actual magical or spiritualistic agency. But Houdini was bound by the magician's code not to reveal the specifics of how the tricks worked. And Sarah Bernhardt, the great French actress, um, likewise believed, apparently, that he was capable of genuine miracles. Um, at that point in her life, she had lost a leg, and she she was fitted with a wooden leg. And apparently in a taxi cab, she and Houdini were traveling together, and she looked at him very soulfully and said something like, please, Mr. Houdini, can you use your magic to uh, to give me a new leg? and of course Houdini was was rather shattered by that and and said I'm I'm sorry madam but no that's beyond my power.
1: It's so interesting because Houdini loved illusions. He wanted to give a good show with his tricks and escapes, but he didn't want grieving people to be tricked. You know, it feels like there's some moral Distinctions he's trying to make between entertainer and also his own role of not causing any more suffering.
2: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Magicians still deal with, the, with that sort of ethic today. Um, Penn and Teller are inclined to talk about things like honest lying.
1: Magician Penn Jillette has said, saying you're doing tricks is beautiful and wonderful, and saying that this is a phenomena that we don't know about and we'd better study more
2: is repulsive. And Houdini had no problem with with trickery presented as trickery because it's it's a vast cognitive presentational moral difference between going along to a theatre paying money to be tricked by a clever illusionist and going along to a seance parlour paying money and expecting to be put in contact with your dead daughter.
1: Support for Criminal comes from Quince. It's spring, and you might be in the mood to get rid of some clutter. A good place as any to start is your wardrobe. Having just a few high-quality, timeless pieces of clothing feels a lot better than a closet full of stuff you're not that thrilled about. You can get some of those well-made essentials from Quince. Quince is a brand that offers luxury clothing essentials at reasonable prices. They have a wide variety of items, like 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters, organic cotton sweaters, washable silk tops, and 14-karat gold jewelry. All of Quince's stuff is affordable. In fact, they're priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They're able to do that because they partner directly with top factories. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash criminal for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash criminal to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash criminal. Harry Houdini assembled a team of people to help him take down anyone trying to profit off of people's willingness to believe that they might somehow communicate with people they'd lost. He called his team of debunkers my own secret service. And his best agent, his top spy was a young woman named Rose Mackenberg. She was smart. She once said, "'I smell a rat before I smell the incense.'" Houdini was impressed. She shared Houdini's disgust for frauds exploiting people who, as Rose put it, were reaching out in the literal dark for any solace and who, racked with grief, had what she called responsive hearts.
2: Houdini at this time was regularly touring his magic show throughout the U.S. Rose and the other members of the, the so-called Secret Service would travel ahead of him. So perhaps they were based in New York City, but if Houdini was doing a magic show in Chicago, Rose and some other members of the Secret Service would travel ahead. Her first stop was usually at a local department store because she wanted to look at how local women dressed, how various, as she put it, types of local women dressed so that she could disguise herself, so she could plausibly pass muster as a bereaved widow or a grieving um, mother or a naive schoolteacher. She had a whole variety of personas and disguises that she regularly used. Now, she also often used um, pseudonyms, particularly those that had, had kind of puns built into them. One of, the, one of her favorite pseudonyms was Alicia bunk, which if you um, pass it out, refers to the expression all is a bunk, as in all of it's fake. Another one was uh, Francis Rod, which, if you write down, um, F. raud spells fraud. So she would go and disguised in this persona with one of these assumed names. She would attend as many seances in, let's say, Chicago as she could fit in about 10 days prior to Houdini showing up. And she would take very careful note of all of the various tricks that the local mediums would employ. She'd write out extremely detailed um, reports on this. And then when Houdini rolled into town, he would actually expose the local spiritualists, um, call them out by name on stage. And again, it's important to, to remember that he is the most popular entertainer in the world. We're very close to it at this time. And so to have the great Houdini literally calling out individual mediums on stage, and not only that, but demonstrating their tricks, because he could perform them by and large better than they could.
1: When you say call them out, would they... Will they sometimes be in the odd? I mean, how would that process work?
2: Let's say, for example, there is a trick of cr- creating the effect of a bell ringing mysteriously in the room, and a, a séance table, for example, would typically be a large round table. The medium and all of the sitters would place their hands on the table. Sometimes the medium would even be physically restrained by being bound and, and so forth. But more typically the spiritualist's hands would be pressed to the table by the hands of a sitter on either side, ostensibly to make sure that they didn't um, surreptitiously use their hands to create any of the the so-called uh, spiritual effects that were happening, the manifestations. But Houdini would demonstrate a method whereby um, he could remove one foot from his shoe, pick up with his toes, which are very, very nimble. He spent time training his toes, he could pick up a bell from the floor underneath the um, table and use his foot and his toes to ring the bell that way. Which in the the darkness, the heightened circumstance, the very dramatic circumstance of of sitting in a pitch black medium's chamber and and anticipating, expecting that um, mysterious events would happen, even as a very simple effect like that um, could be very powerful psychologically, could be very convincing. And so he would demonstrate that sort of effect, but the difference was that Houdini, of course, was, was sitting on a stage. All of the participants, the, the volunteers from the audience would be blindfolded, simulating the pitch blackness of the, the seance room. But of course, he's performing it in um, full view of, uh, of an audience. And so every member of that audience instantly apprehended how that particular trick would be performed.
1: And some of them had probably themselves maybe been to a seance with the same— they had been party to the same performance and thought that this was some sort of real spiritual experience, and now they're in the audience seeing it was all a fraud.
2: Yes. Yeah. And Houdini was particularly aggressive in doing this because as Houdini was performing these exposés on stage, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was touring throughout America performing lectures of his own in which he was very vehemently, very passionately arguing for the, the reality of spiritualistic phenomena. And Houdini was, as I say, he really did set himself up as, well really as Arthur Conan Doyle's nemesis in, in what was sometimes called by the newspapers at least the War of the Spirits.
1: Rose Mackenberg wrote about her experiences, which Tony Wolfe compiled into a book called Houdini's Girl Detective, the real-life ghost-busting
2: adventures of Rose Mackenberg. She wrote a series of exposé articles, um, each one basically devoted to a different escapade, a different theme, a different type of, of fraud, and so forth. She was often called in as a consultant particularly by insurance companies when they were trying to settle insurance claims that that involved some aspect of spiritualistic fraud. One thing that she noted was that um, whenever the United States entered a period of crisis, um, there was a massive uptick in fraudulent spiritualism. So from her point of view, um, the Second World War, the, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and so forth, whenever there was a, um, a national crisis people began pouring money um, towards spiritual fakery.
1: Because they were desperate for clarity. Yes. During one show in Worcester, Massachusetts, Houdini told his audience, no one should suffer the torture of seeing their departed loved ones faked up like a puppet show. A man in the audience stood up and shouted, you don't know what you're talking about. The man was the husband of a local medium, Houdini invited him on stage and the man told the audience that his wife was a psychic endowed by God. He said, I protect my wife. Houdini replied, and I protect the public. The man said, History repeats itself. Christ was persecuted and now spiritualists are being persecuted. To which Houdini replied, But Christ never robbed people of two dollars, did he? Thanks to Progressive for their support. While you're listening to the show, maybe you're also doing something else. Driving, dishes, folding laundry. I listen when I go on walks. If you're not currently driving a car, you could also be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. Save money right now from your phone. Drivers who switch to Progressive save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year, so you're protected no matter what. You can get a quote for your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over the 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts on available in all states and situations. a congressman from New York named Saul Bloom introduced a new piece of legislation, H.R. 8989, attempting to criminalize the work of fortune tellers and mediums in the District of Columbia with fines of $250 or six months in prison. It was very controversial. Opponents argued that the legislation not only interfered with freedom of religion, but also put restrictions on something entertaining— comparing it to trying to pass a law against believing in Santa Claus. Two very well-known mediums, named Jane Coates and Madame Marcia, testified. Madame Marcia was especially famous because in 1909, she had predicted that one of her clients would eventually become First Lady. Six years later, that client married Woodrow Wilson. Her horoscopes were picked up by papers all over the country. Rose Mackenberg testified, too, in support of the bill. But she didn't think the legislation had much of a chance. She knew from her undercover investigations that many important people in Washington, including some senators who were in the room, attended seances. She quoted the medium Jane Coates as saying, I know for a fact that there have been seances held at the White House with President Coolidge and his family, the Chicago Tribune reported that as Rose spoke, Jane Coates and Madame Marsha aimed deadly glances at her. Jane Coates suggested that Houdini had somehow hypnotized Rose Mackenberg. And then Houdini testified. He said, Nobody is supernatural. We are all born alike. At one point, he reportedly put a telegram on a table and offered $10,000 more than $150,000 today, to anyone in the room who could tell him what the paper said. When nobody spoke up, Houdini said he'd proven that the mediums in the room were lying about having powers and belonged in jail. At one point, Houdini was punched in the face. The police were called several times. Saul Bloom, the congressman who'd introduced the legislation in the first place, fainted. The bill did not pass. Houdini announced a standing offer of $10,000 to any spiritualist who could, quote, present a so-called physical manifestation that I cannot reproduce or explain as being accomplished by natural means. He traveled with trunks of papers, documents debunking spiritualism, so he could have everything he could possibly need if someone argued with him. It's been reported that he spent between $30,000 and $40,000 a year paying his secret service and lawyers to defend him when spiritualists sued him. And in the summer of 1926, he announced that he was going to stop performing for several months and dedicate himself entirely to investigating fraudulent mediums, sometimes working for 14 hours a day. But that fall, he was back on stage and one October evening he was backstage at the Princess Theatre in Montreal with a couple of college students. Houdini had been having trouble with his ankle and was lying down on a couch. There was a knock on the door, and another student came into the room. His name was Jocelyn Whitehead. According to one of the students in the room, this is what happened next. Quote, Houdini stated that he had extraordinary muscles in his forearms, his shoulders, and in his back, and he asked all of us present to feel them, which we did. Whitehead then asked Houdini whether it was true that punches in the stomach did not hurt him. Houdini remarked rather unenthusiastically that his stomach could resist much. Thereupon, he gave Houdini some very hammer-like blows, first securing Houdini's permission to strike him. And then the students left the room. Later, Houdini told the nurse that he was in pain. He said that the young student had started punching him, quote, "'Before I could get up and brace myself.'" But he seemed okay. He did two more shows and then left town for Detroit. When his stomach pain got much worse and he developed a fever, he was taken to Grace Hospital in Detroit. Harry Houdini died at 1.26 p.m. on Halloween, 1926. It's been reported over the years that Houdini told friends, and his wife, that he would try to contact them after his death if he could. People claimed that he'd given them special code words so they would know for sure that it was him. His wife, Bess, told the newspaper, quote, "'He promised to come back to me if he could,' And she said that every Sunday she sat in a dark room and waited. I mean, it's interesting because what Rose says is that Houdini really did want to believe in spiritualism. And it it seems to me as though him saying, if I can communicate, I will communicate, is a signal that... You know, he, he wished it was true, but he just he couldn't see that it, it, it was.
2: Well, that, it's a complicated point. I mean, both Rose and Houdini had at least some sympathy for what, what would be referred to as shut eyes. People who genuinely believed in, in the, the possibility of communication after death and so forth. Uh, neither of them really had an ethical problem with that. They may have believed that such people were to some extent delusional, um, but I think they did feel a certain sympathy for them. They'd both suffered bereavements in their own lives and so forth, and they felt that no real harm was done under those circumstances. They saved their ire and they saved their, um, their crusade for the ghost racketeers, for the people who were cynically employing magic tricks to, uh, to exploit the bereaved.
1: Arthur Conan Doyle died four years after Harry Houdini in 1930. Lady Doyle reported that he came back to her a few months later, that she and their children had made contact with him during a seance. Bess Houdini was still waiting. And on Halloween night 1936, ten years after her husband's death, she tried to contact him one last time. When it didn't work, she said, Good night, Harry. She later told Time magazine that ten years is long enough to wait for any man. Rose Mackenberg kept working. She estimated she attended nearly 300 seances. In 1949, a newspaper referred to her as perhaps the only woman ghostbuster in the world. Tony Wolfe says one of his favorite anecdotes about her was that when she retired, she always kept lots of lights on in her house. She said she'd had enough of dark rooms. He says that while he was working on curating Rose's writing, he was interrupted because his father got sick and he had to fly back to New Zealand.
2: And I continued working on the manuscript while I was, I was helping to care for him. He eventually, unfortunately, died. And um, in the weeks and months after his death, as we were preparing his estate, I actually came across a trunk. I opened it up, and it was full of spookology props, of um, fraudulent spiritualistic props. And I was absolutely flabbergasted because I'd been working on compiling the manuscript from Rose's um, articles for at least a year by that point. I had no idea that my dad had actually owned a a collection of exactly the the sorts of uh, props and appliances that I was writing about. And he'd probably forgotten. Apparently, he had bought them many years before and just forgot about them.
1: What types of props? What types of things are you just talking about?
2: Well, the first thing I pulled out was a set of um, what are called glowing hands or floating hands. And if you look at the prop, it's it's childishly simple, really. It's a pair of um, white opera gloves, which have been padded in the palms, painted with a phosphorescent paint and would glow this kind of um, ghostly white green colour and create the visual illusion in the pitch black of a seance room of a ghostly hands trying to sort of press through from across the veil from the other side. Funnily enough, the glowing props, many of the props that I discovered in the trunk, um, actually still glow after probably 75 or 80 years. But yeah, they, they still glow.
1: Criminal is created by Lauren Spohr and me Nydia Wilson is our senior producer. Susanna Robertson is our producer. Engineering by Ross Henry. Audio mix by Rob Byers. Special thanks to Lily Clark. Julian Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of Criminal. You can see them at thisiscriminal.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Criminal Show. Criminal is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal.
2: Radiotopia. From PRX.
1: Thanks to Progressive for their support.